BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 45 of The Bowery Boys. Grand Central Depot. Station. Terminal. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there, and welcome to The Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And this week, we are heading to Grand Central. Grand Central Depot, station, terminal, call it what you will. I am going to make one of my outlandish proclamations. I think that Grand Central Terminal is the most important building in New York City. Absolutely, almost without a doubt. The most important? I think it, I think it is. You know, How it, is that? Well, it brings in thousands of people who feed into New York City's industries. Right. As we'll find out, in the building of Grand Central, it actually kind of created the shape of Midtown Manhattan. Most importantly, it created Park Avenue. And unlike its longtime competitor, Grand Central is still standing. It's a story of a millionaire. It's a story of a few train accidents. It's a story of the introduction of electricity into the city in a very important way. So get on board. Join us for a trip back to Grand Central's history. All right, Tom, we're going to start with the burning question. Ooh. What exactly? There's an ointment for that. <laughs> well, uh, what I need solved, Grand Central. Yes. Is it a station? Is it mm-hmm. a terminal? Why mm-hmm. is it that we all call it a station when it's really a terminal? And, and then why? when we looked into it, we realized its actual name is Grand Central Terminal? Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, it's, it is. It's, the, it's yeah. the terminal, and it's been that way for decades. But for a very long time. Well, it was a station. It was called Grand Central Station, as we'll get into in the podcast today. But it's technically not. I guess it's because it's not really a station. It's where the trains actually terminate. Correct. It's not like they go on to another station. So, Tom, why don't you then... So th- we've got that settled? Yes, I believe, I believe so. Why don't you now give us uh, some situation of this particular place? Well, Grand Central Terminal is located at 42nd Street and Park Avenue, situated on a huge amount of land, 48 acres of land. Uh, today, it serves Metro North Railway. It's a commuter station, basically, perhaps the most gorgeous commuter station. I, yes. Connects to also the Lexington Avenue subway line. And a typical day sees enormous crowds of people, about 125,000 commuters a day. You have, wow. You have uh, some stats well, I have, there, a, I have almost uh, I have almost 700,000 people who actually pass through it, both as right. commuters and people who go to the restaurants and the shops. Right. I, I saw 500,000 people visiting the building. It's you know, a lot of people. A lot of people. 
passed through and used the platforms. There are 44 platforms, 67 tracks on two different levels. It's renowned for having the greatest number of platforms in the world. It's- uh, yeah, at rush hour, I even heard that a train arrives at the terminal every 58 seconds. Mm-hmm. The terminal we know was built in 1913. And it was renovated from 1994 to 2000 at a cost of 250 million dollars. But it shows. It's like the you walk in, it's just it's gleaming. It's right. almost dripping with gold, and like everything's beautiful and clean in that main concourse area, but, which yes. is one of the most spectacular places to visit in the entire city. It's sort of the beating heart of the station, right there. Certainly. In the and we can thank one very tenacious millionaire for giving us Grand Central's and terminal. And who was that millionaire? Well, his name is Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, we haven't really talked in depth about him, but we might have mentioned him in our Staten Island co- podcast because, yes, he is a native mm-hmm. of Staten Island, believe it or not. Now, although he could, you know, he controls the railroad industry in the time we're speaking about, he will make his fortune in another sort of transportation, in boats and ferries. Before I forget, by the way, CNN's Anderson Cooper yes. is actually part of the Vanderbilt family, as we know through his mother, Gloria Vanderbilt, and they're actually connected all the way to Cornelius. So you can think Anderson Cooper when you walk through Grand Central. I'm really glad we managed to fit him into this podcast. I just, you know, it's I've been meaning to for quite a while. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> A little bit about Corny Vanderbilt, as I call him. He was born in Staten Island in 1794. Mm -hmm. As a young teenager, he worked for ferry services that went between Staten Island and Manhattan, but it wasn't, of course, the ferry. It was much, I mean, back, you know, this was the beginning of the 19th century. Robert Fulton and Robert Livingston were given a monopoly by the New York State to actually run ferry operations in the New York area. It was actually a legalized monopoly. Eventually, the monopoly was broken up by the U.S. Supreme Court in a case in 1824 so this sort of opened the door for vanderbilt to kind of sweep in and start his own line of ferries and boats all through the new york harbor up and down new york and new jersey and basically became one of the most the most successful company he got involved in railroads in kind of a roundabout way in 1844 he was voted to be the director of the long island railroad it just happens of course that around this time there's this huge railroad boom american railroads grew from like 9000 miles of track in 1850 to 193000 miles of track in 1900 so with his vast wealth he ended up buying up all these train lines he bought the new york and harlem railroad in 1862 and that actually ran from where we would consider the financial district up to the farmlands of harlem so it was technically the first train local service and these are steam trains right these These are are steam trains above ground big black smoky things running from wall street so in the year 1869 when he was 75 years old he actually bought and consolidated all these other competing railroad lines and then merged them all into one big company which he called the new york central railroad that's interesting because it was the same year 1869 when he started buying up land between 42nd street and 48th street lexington and madison for a place basically to build a giant uh, train depot correct yes now in manhattan at this time so like I, as we said there are these regular trains kind of rolling through each of these trains were independent companies they had their own depots in fact the new york harlem depot sat on 42nd street and what was once fourth avenue so almost exactly in the spot hmm. where 
Grand Central is about to pop up here. And above that, you just have to imagine where Park Avenue is today. Just imagine this huge area of factories, breweries. There was a mm. goat yard around mm. there. And then, you know, train tracks just cutting right through it. Just so a it not was a, a mess. A messy ugly area. In 1856, there was a law passed where basically trains were not allowed to go below 42nd Street because that's where the city started. So that was as close as he could bring his depot inside the city. Correct. So in 1869, as we said, he started buying up all of that land on 42nd Street and he found an architect, John Snook. They built it for $6.4 million. It opened in 1871. As you'll recall, he had three different railroads that were present there. The New York and New Haven line, the New York and Harlem Railroad, and the New York Central. Central, uh Each of those three companies had its own ticketing area, its own baggage area, its own waiting room. So it's like an airport, essentially, right? It sounds like, you know, kind of a confusing mess, but at least it was all under one roof. Well, there were problems with this building as soon as it opened, really. I mean, it was. It wasn't, yeah, it was was barely usable even then. Because if you can think about these big trains pulling into basically this large shed, we're still coming in very smoky. It was congested. It was dangerous. I actually heard that in order to keep it clean inside, they they called it flying in. They actually had the locomotive part, the smoky part, separate from the rest of the train, and it would turn really quickly, like a little detour, and the uh, the rest of the cars behind it would just roll into the station. Well, that sounds really safe. (laughs) Well, as we're going to see, they're not really thinking about safety much. Because of these problems, they took the depot and they renovated it in 1900, reconstructed, really, and reopened as Grand Central Station. Now, this time, it had an enormous glass and steel train shed that was 650 feet long, which is very long, had a classical facade, Um, a single gigantic waiting room, classical ornamentation around. I think it it sounds like it was a lovelier building than the old depot. It does, but it was only really around for a few years. Because it also had those same problems. It was still too overcrowded and and polluted. One of Grand Central's really big problems was was tracks leading into the terminal. As you said, they were just creating this disgusting, noxious odor. You know, they were cutting the island, stripping it down the middle like a gigantic scar. And on top of it, the city needed to really grow around it, it was growing above 42nd Street, you know, where this was once con- referred to as the end of the earth. It was now filling up rapidly with buildings. They ended up even building little walkways over the tracks at every little right. cross street. Well, finally in eight, 1873. And that was, I'm sorry, to prevent accidents or that was well, just so, so that people it, wouldn't be running across the tracks? Yeah, because people get, were, yeah, I mean, all, all sorts of madness. Can because, you imagine but, if, if today we had train tracks that just sliced down the island and people had to well, race across well, the tracks? Well, first of all, everything we have on the east side right now, just it wouldn't be there. There would be no United Nations. There would be no Upper East Side culture, you know, because there'd be these tracks running through. It. In 1873, they did build tunnels near the de- the depot for, so these trains could go into to leave some of the street pollution. Believe it or not, and this is very typical of the Vanderbilts, they didn't want to build the tunnels. They kind of didn't care until the city actually agreed to co-finance these tunnels mm. for $6 million. But these tunnels made things even worse because you had this accumulated you were stuck smoke. inside. They would come dark in the tunnel. There's no electric lights right now, you know, this day before electric lights. And so it kind of all came to a head 
unfortunately. January 8, 1902, there was a New York Central train. It was heading for Grand Central, and it collided with a New Haven line in a tunnel on 54th Street. It killed a total of 17 passengers, 15 of them instantly. Um, there was a huge public outcry in the newspapers. The city actually then banned steam locomotives from, from New York because by this time... There's technology to build electric trains. Mm. You know, you now have the technology to do that, but could they do it on this grand scale? Since this was never really an adequate place anyway, they decided to build an entirely new place. And and the idea would be that the trains would, what, chug their way toward New York and then at a certain point stop, switch to the electrified tracks, and then, then use that electricity to come into the station. Yes, So Insweep's in a kind of an unsung genius to this whole story. I think he's underappreciated in history, frankly. He is the chief engineer of the New York Central Railroad at the time. His name is William Wilgus. Basically, it's with his decisions that he makes. He sort of helps shape midtown Manhattan and had basically what is essentially the most complex construction task in New York City history because he comes up with several innovations that form the new Grand Central Terminal and form the new Midtown Manhattan. Um, you know, instead of everyone sharing the same tracks as they sometimes would, Wilgus created two levels of tracks underneath the ground, the top level for local commuters and the bottom one for long distance trains. These tunnels tracks would be electrified by a third rail to move the trains in and out of the city with very little pollution. Also, we don't see this, but the trains would loop underground. So an arriving train would basically follow this curve underground and then all of a sudden become a departing train on another track. So if you're ever standing at 40th Street and Park Avenue and you wonder what that rumble is underneath it's, that's you, what it that is. could be, yeah. No, it's, it is what it is. A it, Metro North train doing a loop. And just creating that, it cuts down on the number of trains and, and, and all the clutter of this of cross traffic of trains having to like, you know, it's incredible. So even though it was a terminal where trains would pull in and stop, they could still actually do a turnaround. So how did he do it? I mean, each each track then had to be done one at a time, starting on the east side, like the basically the easternmost track. They had to excavate the ground, and uh, you know, while the old trains were still operating, I mean, there were, no service was never interrupted for this whole thing, which I find absolutely yeah, incredible. And d- d- throughout the entire construction process of the new Grand Central Terminal. Trains continued to come into Grand Central Station until it was literally ripped down in 1910. Now, the whole project would be 25 miles of water and sewer lines had to be removed or relocated. More than 3 million cubic yards of rock and dirt, because they dug really low on the ground, had to be taken away. 200 buildings along the path had to be demolished. And just, you know, I, I, I hate to be a bore here, but if you think about... The old train lines had just been on basically what is today Park Avenue, just shooting up the park and really Mm -hmm. on both sides, too, because there were so many tracks. I mean, it wasn't just like there were two tracks or three or four tracks. They took up blocks of space right now. They had to take all of that and put it not just underground, but two layers. Stack it on top of each other. Now, the other two innovations I are personally, I think, are the, are the most incredible. The first one is the concept of terminal city, 
which connects Grand Central to sort of other neighboring buildings underground, creating this concept of like you never have to leave the Grand Grand Central. You can get everything you need from underground city within a city, even though this sort of connectivity doesn't quite exist as it, as it did or how, how it was planned, it sort of sets the stage or foreshadows Rockefeller Center mm-hmm. and sort of what it does. But my favorite part, and I think one of the most important parts of Grand Central, were what Wilgus called taking wealth from the air. The idea of the first real usage of what would, of course, would today would be a very popular real estate term, this concept of air rights. Because now you had all this land that there that had now been built over and there's underground tracks. So why not fund the whole project by then leasing and selling that land so that people can develop on it? And develop they would. We're talking about apartment buildings, office buildings, hotels. They would all start popping up over the next decade or so along 42nd Street and up and down Park Avenue. And, you know, they're they're really fortifying these underground tracks so they actually can build tall buildings and they'll stand. Weren't they actually on, like, steel stilts? Basically, if you yeah, if you look at sort of a, a, a three dimensional pattern, they, I, I mean, it, it's incredible to think that it's all holding the city up, it's, and that's essentially it's what it's doing. It's actually kind of terrifying. <laughs> well, so then, so these new buildings were erected. The new money moved uptown, and you know, it became an upper class neighborhood of like you said of apartment buildings and hotels, including the new Waldorf Astoria. Oh, and I'm sorry, there is one more innovation: the traffic loop around Grand Central. Um, you know, it's what they call the circumferential elevated driveway. You know, it goes around Grand Central. And well, then... Right, because as we recall, Grand Central was basically plopped down at what was the top of Park Avenue. Yes. Before there was another side to Park Avenue. There was so, no, one, no one needed to go to the back of it. <laughs> no, that was a train yard. It was supposed to be sort of a dead end. But suddenly, they were selling off and developing the other side of Park Avenue. Traffic needed to get around somehow. And how could they do it this, in some kind of expeditious way? And so there's them? this elevated uh, right, so traffic loop. That raise the road up, send it around. So how do you think they repaid him? How do you think they repaid William? Um, they carved a statue to him. Well, um, Vanderbilt has a statue right, in front of the yeah. building, but no, Wilgus is nowhere to be found. Something happened. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. 
So uh, electric tracks were finally in place. Um, they were first used on February 15th, 1907, and it was uh, in White Plains, believe it or not, in, in Westchester. The next day, a train was whipping around a track, and it like flew off the tracks and killed 20 people. Like oh. The next day, there was another outcry, because they remembered the crash from like five years ago. They were like, this opened too soon. The papers were blaming Wilgus for speeding the whole process up before it had been properly tested. And maybe you can argue that a little bit, but essentially... Wilkes had to resign in July of 1907, so he really got none of the glory of this. It's only when you look back on the whole story. Well, we're giving him some glory right now. He got an unfair shake, yep. is what I say. Yeah. So, but let's talk a little bit about the building itself. Now that we've t- I've t- well, been waxed upon about the tracks, <laughs> the tracks are worth waxing. Yeah. And it's also worth noting that it was expensive. Obviously, all of that blasting was really expensive. Mm-hmm. And of course, construction would go on for about 10 years. As we said, the trains continued to run throughout the entire project. Now, in 1903, They held a contest to choose the architects who would design Grand Central Terminal uh, that attracted lots of, you know, top names in architecture like McKim, Mead, and White, who had actually, well, they would design Pennsylvania Station Uh a couple years later. Burnham and Company from, you know, Chicago, who put on the World's Fair. Oh, of course, Burnham. And um, Flatiron Building. The Flatiron Building. However, the winner was none other than the architecture firm of Reed and Stem. You know Reed and Stem. (laughs) Um... I know they're from St. Paul, St. Paul, Minnesota. Is that correct? Right. And you might also know that Reed's sister was married to Wilgus. You're very Wilgus. Would, <laughs> yeah. Very, um, I wonder if there's any nepotism. But wait, there's more. <laughs> After the competition, actually, New York architects Warren and Wetmore uh-huh. uh, submitted an appeal. They appealed the decision. <laughs> they're like, well, no, our design is better. Yeah. And they were chosen as well, because Warren, it turns out, was also the cousin of William Vanderbilt, who was now the chairman of the New York Central Railroad. It's, it's who you know. In the city, it's who you know. It At really is. Then. So the two of them, you could say that those two groups were married together, and the new team was called the Associated Architects of Grand, Grand Central Station, and they were forced to work together... And it opened without a hitch, Grand Central Terminal, on February 2nd, 1913. 150,000 people showed up, visited the terminal. It wasn't quite finished yet. And what did they see? Yeah, what were, when so, they, what were some when of the they things, walked in? Some of the things that are there now that, we, that they saw. First of all, when they walked in, they walked down a ramp. Okay, I'm yes. going to just start with the ramp. When you visit Grand Central, you may notice that you walk in through the doors, go down a ramp, walk around. You can get on a train. You can walk down into the lower concourse to the the dining area, and you never actually need to walk up or down any stairs. The ramps actually guide commuters almost where they need to go, which is a brilliant kind of uh, right. design. It, it's a Roman principle it's been used for millennia and it was employed here they also saw then once they went past the glorious waiting rooms the information booth that Uh sits in the middle of the main concourse sort of the you know the heart of it all it's an octagonal (laughs) structure that's crowned uh, with that four-sided opal clock. Oh, that very, yes, a, it's worth millions of dollars. Worth a fortune, yeah. Um, they also saw, people visiting that first day, the staircase 
that's on the western side, yes. the marble, made of Tennessee marble. Now, there's two staircases now, but at the time... Right, at the time, there was only one because they didn't consider anything on the eastern side really worth looking out to. That doesn't sound very Beaux-Arts of them, to only have one staircase. Did you say Beaux-Arts? <laughs> Is that how you would cat- characterize the style inside? Oh, well, that's, that's the whole building. As a matter of fact, this and the public library are considered New York's two most extreme, beautiful examples of the Beaux-Arts style. And if they looked up, they saw the ceiling that was painted in 1912 by Paul Cesar Hello, Frenchman. Now, you've seen the ceiling. You've checked it out. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, it's fantastic. It's, it's an a big ast- constellation. Right, which today is beautifully restored before the restoration in the 90s for, what, half of the century probably? You couldn't even see it because no, it was, it was covered hidden in under... tar, I mean know, like cigarette t- smoke. Tobacco, tobacco smoke, smoke and such. And they had to actually, during the restoration, literally like peel off Ugh. the tar as if it was getting a facial. There are some problems, some very like well-known problems. Well, as we know, it's, well, it's, it's backwards, right? Or it's in reverse. It's as if you're looking at it from a negative. The whole scene is backwards. Hello was using a medieval drawing which was based on a reflection of the solar system. The, the <laughs> Vanderbilts, no, I'm, you're laughing. The Vanderbilts would argue, actually, that this was the way that God would see right, the Right, from looking from the other... As if God were looking into a snow globe. <laughs> like he, like, like, that just makes you feel trapped and weird for some reason. I don't like that explanation. As you said, it opened on February 2nd, 1913, with 150,000 people on opening day alone, improvements in train travel would only make Grand Central um, a much more iconic place as the years went by and would also make train travel a lot more glamorous. And all these train lines that came into Grand Central would actually become well-known trains. And there was this... The trains were almost celebrities themselves. You had the Wolverine, which was a famous one, but the most famous one was called the 20th Century Limited. Its heyday was through the 30s and 40s, but its last ride went all the way up to 1967. They went between Grand Central and LaSalle Street Station in Chicago. It was the upper-class train. It was sort of the conveyance of choice for celebrities and politicians tom there was even there's even a play and a movie about it you know the movie 20th century with carol lombard of course it's set on the 20th century train and it starts as they are going to grand central the 20th century it really created the notion of of red carpet treatment they even had red carpets as the clients came in to board the train very fancy grand central attracted millions and millions of people just going to work every day or going for long distance trips in 1947 alone 65 million people traveled through grand central which it, is 40 percent of the population of the United States. <laughs> that's like that's outrageous. During World War II, Grand Central, of course, you know, was a, a very melancholy place. It was a location for soldiers leaving their families or arriving, you know, from duty abroad. But it had a more ominous meaning during the war too. They had these rotary converters that basically run the whole place that are down in the basement. Right. We um, haven't talked about those, but they are often a secret location we, in some sub basement. No one even knows where they are. We don't know where they are. <laughs> But well, we there's, <laughs> there are Someone acres knows. and acres and acres of underground space, so they could really be anywhere, and they generate the power to keep the rails moving, to keep them electrified. Well, you know, did you know this, that Hitler sent spies to sabotage these rotors. They were caught, obviously, and luckily. So because of that, there was such high security at Grand Central that it was even rumored that any unauthorized person that was found in the lower facility would be shot on sight. On a happier note, from 1939 to 1964, 
CBS arrives at Grand Central, and they broadcast many programs there. Now, I know we mentioned uh, a couple weeks ago about <laughs> Studio Fifty Four being a former not go back there <laughs> being a former CBS studio. Well, in fact, Grand Central was also a CBS studio. CBS Evening News was broadcast there. Certain game shows were broadcast from Grand Central Station. I mean, Edward R. R. Murrow's show was there. It makes you understand why they finally consolidated their operations. They were all over Midtown. <laughs> now, by the 1950s, tastes were beginning to change. Americans were embracing things that were new, such as taking airplanes between cities and driving their cars. They were also embracing the suburb. There was a change, of a new feeling of confidence about the future, and I guess in some respects that meant destroying some of the remnants of the past. Well, people were into flying. They were, this new air travel. They were into the highways. They all had new cars. This train station could be used for other things. And the federal government was starting to fund the giant highway acts that were building these superhighways across the country, and they were not investing the same amount of money in maintaining the, the train tracks. Railroad companies were having a hard time keeping up with this change. Well, so Grand Central basically became a, a dump starting in the 40s and 50s. They started hanging these gigantic advertisements all over the place. A very well-known Kodak sign mm. hung over one side for years. And covered up the windows that were so beautiful. Blocking all, a lot yeah, all this light. old style splendor was totally covered up. In the 50s, they even put this gigantic rocket, I guess, as a sign of like the U.S. Cold War. For several weeks, they put up a redstone rocket. But, and just as a, a real sign of the degradation of Grand Central is in 1963 when they build Pan Am Building right behind it. They cast a shadow on it. It just looks like the time is almost up for Grand Central. And that wasn't even the first building that they had planned to build because already back in 1950, for the New York Central, who we should say was desperate to figure out how to raise any money, announced plans to destroy Grand Central Terminal and replace it with a 6 million square foot office tower. They had a couple different plans. One of them was by IMP. It was called Hyperboloid. It was a 108-story <laughs> office building. It looked so futuristic, so kind of cool, but of course, we don't like it. That plan, that went nowhere. The other was by Alfred Fellheimer, who has this great quote. I think this just sums it all up. Okay, this was by the developer. Yes. We carefully weighed our own pride in the present building and its emotional and aesthetic significance to people all over the world. Our reluctant but firm conclusion is that neither pride nor reverence should be permitted to clot the vitality of a great metropolis. <laughs> to like, it's seen as a clot to the city, like right. Grand, Central Grand Central and these clot. old buildings. 1963 was another sad year because that was the first year of the demolition across town, about 15 blocks away, of Penn Station. Which had been its rival for years. The rival station operated by the Pennsylvania Railroad. It was demolished from 1963 to 65 to make way for the lovely Madison Square Garden. <laughs> And in response, there was a group formed called Agbany, A-G-B-A-N-Y, which were concerned um, architects and other civic leaders who banded together to try to save Pennsylvania Station. Um, at first, Mayor Wagner dismissed them, then turned around after the, the destruction of Pennsylvania Station from 63 to 65. There was such a public outcry that in 1965, the mayor signed into legislation the Landmark Preservation Committee. So now that committee was able to bestow the honor of landmark status upon a building. 1967, on August 2nd, 
the Landmark Preservation Commission would designate Grand Central Terminal a landmark. Well, the next year in 1968, New York Central actually merged with its rival, Pennsylvania Railroad, to form Penn Central Railroad. They leased out the whole building to development company, and the development company immediately announced that they were going to build a 55-story <laughs> office tower above Grand Central. So leaving Grand Central, but then it would just be on top of it. Like, ugh. It was going to sit sort of on top of it, destroying the interior of it, but preserving the facade of it. Oh, my God. Because they said that it was only the exterior that had been landmark, not the interior. Oh, God, specifics. Well, you know, it always boils down (laughs) to it. So they could actually build this sort of crazy 55-story office building on top of it. Keep the the very bottom. It looks... You should see some of those designs. They're pretty funny. <laughs> um, it was... The plan was, unsurprisingly, rejected by the Preservation Board. And so the developers then came back with a second proposal that actually destroyed the facade but kept the main concourse. Well, <laughs> that didn't make even less sense. No. And then it went to court in August of 1969... And it stayed in the courts for about 10 years. And Penn Central was charging that the city's preservation law just wasn't even valid at all. The case became a real cause celebre. Most famously, Jackie O, Jacqueline O'Neill. Oh, sure, yes. Uh, who became a very public spokeswoman for the cause and drummed up an enormous amount of publicity and stayed with the group and the Municipal Arts Society which I think was about 80 years old at the time and really helped lead this fight, they took it all the way to the United States Supreme right. Court. And in, so, and, and how did they, they rule? Well, in the case of Penn Central Transportation Company versus New York City in 1978, the first time the Supreme Court ever ruled on historic preservation, and they ruled in favor of the city on June 26. Wow. And Grand Central Terminal was saved. But here's the funny part. So it's saved. But it was a dump. But it's still a big dump. <laughs> it's still a dump. So in 1994, the MTA, the Metropolitan Transit Authority, which of course controls all of our transportation here in the city, then assumes control of Grand Central. And so they decide that they are going to be the ones to clean up in an extraordinary really expensive 250 million massive cleaning to restore Grand Central back to its original luster, basically cleaning everything, reopening places that have been closed. And in some ways, actually adding things to it that were never there in the first place. Such as that East staircase. That because by there. this time, there were actually some things to look at. <laughs> On the East side. Yeah, I think a few things. They, um, they even went back to Tennessee and reopened that quarry. marble quarry. And so today, when you go into Grand Central, you are basically seeing a Grand Central that no one has ever seen before because it's the original designs, but even more improved. Not modernized, not advanced, just literally refined in, this, in the way that the original architects and the original New York Central Railroad had intended. So if you haven't been to Grand Central in a while, it deserves a visit. You can visit their website and even print off a walking tour in advance, yes. which we've both done in the yeah, past Yeah, it was week. great. And there's, there's even a, a smaller version of the Transit Museum at the Grand Central that has little exhibits and even a gift store where you can buy all sorts of Grand Central goodies and everything. And there are even guided tours, weekly guided tours, you can find out about on the official website. Well, there's so many so many secrets that we didn't even touch on. The, the place is 
filled with mystery. There you have it. There's our grand podcast on Grand Central. You can see more, including photographs, on the blog this week. A lot of beautiful photographs have been taken of Grand Central, as, as you all know. Lots of iconic images. And I'll have some of them up on the blog, which is BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I have an announcement for oh. everyone. Next week, we will not have a show. I will be traveling, and Tom will be traveling. So we won't be anywhere to record a show, but we will return with a juicy one in two weeks. We promise. We're also planning our 50th podcast, so if you have any suggestions about what our 50th episode should be, send us an email. You can find our email on the blog at BoweryBoysPodcast.com. Well, thanks a lot for listening, and until two weeks, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you in two weeks. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.